like to speak tonight kind of to continue the last few evenings. been talking about insight meditation since that's what we come to do together in some way. Continuing the questioning or discussion about the nature of insight meditation. If one goes to the source of Buddhism, um, at least in an outer way, one would go, as some of you perhaps have, to India and go to this little village in North India called Bodhgaya, where there's a large and ancient temple, and next to the temple is a large and ancient tree, the fourth generation of the tree under which 2,500 years ago the Buddha is said to have sat and awakened. I think it's wonderful that he sat under a tree and not in some temple in Benares or, or something like that, that from the very beginning the symbol of sitting under the tree and connecting with the, tr- the tree of enlightenment is the symbol of connecting with nature rather than with that which is artificial in some way or man-made. And if you go to this wonderful temple, it's surrounded by Tibetan lamas doing prostrations and butter lamps that are lit at night as offerings and people doing prayers and chanting and pilgrims and beggars and all of the sites of India. And it's an extraordinary kind of power spot you feel that something really happened in this place, even though it was a long, long time ago. Having been there a number of times, I kind of sit and meditate, listen to the Tibetan lamas chanting and the bells and so forth, and I reflect sometimes, now what actually did happen here, assuming this story is as told? Someone sat down, like us, a person, a long time ago, and the had a vision or a realization of the nature of life, of the universe, that brought to them perfect peace, tremendous and profound rest, joy, opening, completion. So that's the first thing that happened. Someone sat there and came to a kind of inner perfection. The second thing that happened to the Buddha sitting there beside this awakening or realization coming to peace was the understanding that this could be communicated, that this could be awakened or developed, this capacity to be in touch with the universe in some profound way in other people. In other words, that in proper circumstances it was contagious. Now, since the Buddha came from a tradition of yogis, he practiced as a yogi, he was often asked to show his yogic powers, particularly his psychic powers. Usually he would demur and say, no, you know. Once in a while he had to do it, like with his own parents. You know how it is to go home to your parents after you've been away for a while. That was the best that, was the, best the Buddha could do. They wouldn't listen to him. Um, but anyway, parents aside... Um, Normally, he would say, there is a power I would like to demonstrate. He said, it's true, there are psychic powers and there are various kinds of amazing so-called miracles. Although I think life, just to see and hear and smell and taste and be here on this 
8,000 mile diameter sphere of rock hurling through space with this thin layer of life on it and look around at the stars and one another and remember your name, that's probably the biggest miracle. (laughs) But leaving that aside, he said the miracles that the Buddha could most offer to people was the miracle of education. So he became a teacher. He would sit with others and teach, and in his teaching he would often ask questions rather than just give answers. Starting with perhaps how that person had begun to inquire of him, or starting with the life of the person in front of him. And he would ask things like, how are you living? How does the way of living that you have chosen Where does that lead you? Do you have a sense of it? And then he'd wait for them to answer. Or he would ask if they inquired about whether something was good or not. He'd say, well, reflect on yourself. Is this wise? Does it lead to harm or to well-being of people and beings of every kind? Does it follow the true laws of nature or does it fight against them? Suppose he would ask, suppose it were true that with every act and every word that you speak, that you are creating this world, how this world will be. How then should you act? How then would you choose to speak? Is it true, he would say, that we always reap what we sow? If that's true, then what would you wish to sow? And so forth. So he would ask these questions, and sometimes he would recommend different practical ways of living or of training oneself to see yet more clearly, to awaken the eyes and the heart and the ears and the mind and the body. Other times, he would ask a different kind of question. He would ask questions about who we are. He would say, are you the sights that you see? Well, are you the sounds or the smells or tastes? Are you your thoughts? Perhaps you're your feelings. No, they don't last very long. Maybe you're this body. Do you think you're this body? Is this who you are? And so he would inquire with people, who do you think you are? Where do you come from? What is your true nature? Perhaps even before this body was born. He would sit with people in silence and ask these kinds of questions until the people with him came to see a new truth, a new depth of understanding arose in them until they came to see, for example, that they weren't the sights and sounds, that they were not their thoughts or feelings, that in fact none of this can be possessed. If you could possess it, it would do what you want. Does your mind do what you want? I mean, let's face it. How about your feelings, your body? 
And in seeing that we are not the possessors, but rather that we enter to dance with this, but not to own it, we too can discover the Tao, or the Dharma, the way of nature, the way to peace. I don't know if I talked about this last week, but my daughter is six years old and she started first grade uh, a few weeks ago. And both my wife, Liana, and I have been feeling some unhappiness about this. Not so much because it's not a good school. It is actually a very good school, although it's a little bit long, I think, for six-year-olds to spend till from, from 8.30 to 3 or whatever. But more just from not having her around. There's a sense of loss of having our baby go away. I know she'll go to college too, probably, someday, but... Let me see. Oh, yes, didn't take these things out. So we're just kind of looking at that, looking at the steps in parenting of letting go of children. There's an article on, on parenting in Mothering Magazine, um, part of it written by a librarian, where she says, Children are like books on loan. We can lose them. We can be distracted from reading them during the time allotted. We can retain them beyond their due dates and pay the penalty. (laughs) Or we can read and enjoy them while they are with us. What we cannot do is keep them. Isn't that lovely? And it's not just true of our children, but it's true of everything in our lives. So the art of parenting wisely, or the art of living, is the art of being present for things as they evolve and change and grow, as our children grow, as our relationships grow, as the earth around us changes. And learning to listen to that law and live with it with a, a spirit of grace or ease and ability to let go. It's also the art of being able to see in the child, the adult, and the Buddha that's there in every child. Now, unfortunately, much of our contemporary education is not based in that uh, direction. Um, It's not so much an education of the spirit. It's oriented more towards scores on SATs and getting into good colleges or creating productive members of our society, and good consumers to boot. So we have different kinds of education. I'm sure you can think back to some of your own education. When I was studying psychology in graduate school, I heard in a class where I was studying behaviorism about uh, a kind of education that was perpetrated on a professor by the students. It was a professor who was teaching uh, basic behavioral psychology and operant conditioning and all of the stimulus response things that Madison Avenue and various other things know well. And what the students decided to do to this professor who was teaching about these things When he was not in class one day, they made a little agreement. And this was a professor, a man who liked to pace back and forth in the room while he spoke. 
So what they did is they put two very small marks on the blackboard on either end, either side. And as long as the professor paced within the marks, they would pay attention to him. <laughs> but when he walked outside of the marks, then they would lower their eyes to look at their notes. And in two lectures, they had him walking just between the marks. The next lecture, they moved the marks a little closer together. And the next, yet closer together. And by the end of half a semester, they had the professor walking in little circles between two tiny marks on the blackboard before they told him. So that's one kind of education, the uh, SAT behaviorist, good producer and good consumer. Now, it's not new, that kind of education. Um, Kabir, if you read, is an, you know, an ancient Indian poet, talks about that in, in spiritual life. Um, he calls them spiritual athletes who change the color of their clothes, but their minds re remain gray and loveless. They might sit inside a classroom or a shrine all day while God is outdoors praising the, the rocks and clouds. You know. Or they pretend they're yogis, drill holes in their ears, their beards grow enormous and matted. People would mistake them for goats. <laughs> Kabir says, you know, they shave their skull, put robes in an orange vat, read the sacred text, and become a terrific talker. Kabir says, actually, you're going in a hearse to the country of death, bound hand and foot. This is not true education. There's another story of a different kind of education, also from my graduate school training. This was from another friend who took a class in perception. And they studied the various schools, that have tried to describe what it means, this mystery of seeing, or smelling, or hearing, or tasting. And people have all these words about it, although no one really understands it. The final exam in this class was an unusual one, however. It was a class of 80 students, and the professor bought, brought a great big crate, or a big bowl of oranges, 80 of them. And students were asked, to remove an orange and sit down and for an hour write about that orange. Everything they could write about it. How it sounded when they, when they squished. He didn't tell them what to write, but you could write anything. How it sounded when you squished it, how it felt when you rubbed it against your skin, this, the, uh, the, the nature of the little bumps and stipples on it, the smell, whatever you wished. So people were madly writing, hoping to get a good grade, of course. And then the hour was done, and he had them put all the oranges back together into the bowl or the crate. And he said, now the exam will begin. He said, I would like you all, and he mixed them around, to come up and find your orange. <laughs> And the person who took that class said that they all did, and it was not very difficult. And after that time, she said, an orange was never the same to her again. Can you hear the differences in kinds of education? 
Now, in Caroline, my daughter going to school, actually, I think she's fine. She's in a wonderful open classroom in San Geronimo Valley. Tomorrow, they ask all the children, they don't, they don't sit them in desks, make these little, you know, six-year-olds have to sit there and write something. Tomorrow, they asked all the children to bring in one fuzzy sock. I said, what's that for? Well, they're going to put the fuzzy sock on over their shoes and go out and walk in the fields and see what sticks to it. And then bring the fuzzy sock with all that's stuck to it back to the classroom, examine it for a while, and then in a clean plot of earth, bury their fuzzy socks and see what grows. So what I realized in Caroline going to school, because she's having a good time actually, is it's not her problem, it's mine. And the main problem is the loss of having a child around because she kept me young. And I'm afraid if she's not home enough, I'll forget and I'll just become an old adult again. The question then, maybe I talked about this last week, I couldn't remember, but is how to keep a freshness, a beginner's mind, a kind of clarity, a connection to the divine, to what's new and alive, how to see from our hearts. It's a bit like a question that was raised a few weeks ago in here about how to find satisfaction in the endless responsibility of work and commuting and driving your children to the dentist if you do or caring for your lover's uh, clothes or cooking or whatever it happens to be, however you live, and paying your bills and rent. Now, one way is just to drop out and run away. It's not really very good here. I'll go to the Himalayas or something like that. Go to a monastery. But actually, for those of us like myself who've lived in monasteries as monks or nuns, what you discover is it's really pretty much the same. You eat and then you have to wash the dishes and clean up. And there's still responsibilities and people to talk to and a sense of community. And if you do it even half decently and stay for a while, they end up making you the abbot. And then it's worse than what you left. So desirable though that strategy may seem, it doesn't really work. Because wherever you go, there you are with the rest of yourself and life. We're born, we come into form, into incarnation. We take a body, as some people would say. And to enter form means somehow, as a human being, it means something to us, not just to run away from it, but what is its, what is its purpose? And is it possible then, may I ask, to find what we seek, joy, freedom, wholeness, great peace, in this very life, in the midst of this form? Can we find freedom in the difficulties and the actual circumstance of our life? See, here's a poem by Wordsworth, a sonnet, which has its own particular form. It's kind of like that poem which begins, Stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage. And here's Wordsworth. Nuns fret not at their convent's narrow room, and hermits are contented within their cells, and students with their pensive citadels 
Maids at the wheel, the weaver at his loom, sit blithe and happy, bees that soar for bloom. High as the highest peak of furnace fell, will murmur by the hour in foxglove bells. In truth, the prison unto which we doom ourselves, no prison is. And hence for me, in sundry moods, t'was pastime to be bound within the sonnet's scanty plot of ground. Pleased if some souls, for such their needs must be, who have felt the weight of too much liberty, should find brief solace there, as I have found. So his pleasure comes to be bound within the sonnet's scanty plot of ground, to find a freedom while weaving. What can you do when you weave? The thread goes this way and then it goes that way. That's all that it does. To find a freedom in the cell of a hermit or a nun or a monk. To understand that freedom is not how far we can travel or how much vacation we have or in any way an escape from our form, our body, our feelings, our personality or life. But instead that we're asked to discover in this dance to awaken to a freedom in the midst of our life. to turn what we do into something sacred. For a Buddha, this kind of freedom or awakening comes by fulfilling what are called the ten perfections. If any of you want to become a Buddha, you are anyway, but if you want to fulfill it, and it said it takes a long time, hundreds of thousands of mahakalpas, which is to say, don't think about how long it takes. <laughs> For hundreds of thousands of lifetimes of mahakalpas and world systems, the Buddhists fulfill the perfections of kindness, or of steadiness, or of compassion, or of wisdom, or clarity, or letting go, or attention, or patience. That's a nice one. A really basic one of these Buddhist perfections is the perfection of patience, particularly useful these days. Now, as I was giving, thinking about giving this talk and starting with that image of the temple where the Buddha sat in Bodhgaya and had his realization and realized that it was communicable, I remembered traveling in India and I thought about patience. I went to an Indian post office early on in my stay to mail a letter. It was crowded. I waited in line. The line said stamps. After a while, I got to the end of the line. I got to the window. He said, no, I'm so sorry. This is not for sending stamps for out of the country. All right. So then I went, and there was a line that said foreign stamps, stamps for out of the country. I waited in that line. I got to the end of the line. He said, oh, I'm so sorry, you must have letter weighed first. So I went into the line to have the letter weighed before I could buy the stamps. 
I got almost up to the window. This is my third line now. And then the window went down. I'm sorry, closing for lunch. Come back. <laughs> Hour and a half, we will be right back. Soon coming. <laughs> so I went off to lunch. And I came back. And I went through the line to have my letter weighed, a little number written on it. And then I got in the line for stamps to foreign countries. Got the stamp on the letter. And then I was told I had to get in the line for the postmark. <laughs> I think in part because those stamps are worth a lot. If you send it out of a country, it's a few rupees, which is, could be a day's wages for someone who's quite poor. And so unless it's postmarked, there's some chance it will not get there. <laughs> so it has to be stamped and postmarked right away. Took almost a whole day, good part of a day, to mail the letter. There seem to be two strategies people, for people in that circumstance. One is to go psychotic. <laughs> the other is just to let it go and see that this is part of the lessons of life, to be where you are. This is the perfection of patience. I see why the Buddha fulfilled it so easily in India. <laughs> Now, a better word for this perfection, perhaps, is Suzuki Roshi's word, constancy. From this simple word of constancy, there comes a kind of presence, a coming back again and again to what is here. And out of that grows kindness and strength and steadiness and understanding and living in harmony with the Tao, with the Dharma, with the way things are. Now that's all very well, but how do we do it in a world of such urgency? And you turn on the TV and it's saying, hurry, go out and do this right away, all the time. There's that nice phrase from some meditation master, hasten slowly. Ah. When one learns Walking meditation, if you go to a retreat, and most of you have, but some perhaps not. Walking meditation is often taught slowly, but it's not really about moving slowly. What we say often in the instructions are to walk at whatever speed keeps you most present, most here, most awake, most mindful. Sometimes slowly, sometimes more quickly. Meditation is the art of doing what we do and bringing our senses, our heart, our whole being to that. Now Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a wonderful teacher, many of you know, a Vietnamese Zen master, he tends to do things very slowly. Takes people on walks slowly, makes tea very slowly, and even when he teaches, he'll teach for an hour or so, an hour and a half, talk for a while, then he'll go back and he'll kind of hide away and be quiet for a few hours and then come back and then do some more extraordinary teaching. Spends some months of the year just living in a very simple way in uh, a cottage in France where there's no phone and very few people to see. And he says that he needs that in order to maintain his sense of connectedness or wakefulness. And you feel it, because when he comes out of there, there's this splendid sense from him of presence and wakefulness and beauty. But it needn't always be that slowly. 
One of the teachers I studied with in India was a man named Anagarika Munindra, who's a bit more like myself. I kind of like to bound up steps two at a time. And uh, which disappointed people when we were living in, uh, when I was living in the meditation center in Massachusetts, um, in Barrie, people would come and they would have listened to my Dharma talks and expect this kind of very mellow and quiet person and then come in and see me kind of leaping around instead. <laughs> one, one European who came for a three-month retreat said that I reminded them of an Italian shoe salesman. <laughs> the tapes were good, but the actual experience was more troubling. Anyway, Menindra, who practiced, I guess, in the same fashion as I long ago, who, and wears all white from head to toe, and has its own little kind of white robes and costume and so forth, um, has been called by some of his students the White Tornado, <laughs> like one of those advertisements for cleansers on television. And he's quite present, but he does it at a very different pace and speed than Thich Nhat Hanh. The game is not so much what speed we move at, but the spirit or presentness that we bring to it. It's not a withdrawal from life, but rather a learning to bring our full attention, to open ourselves to where we are, to be awake, mindful, to the beauty, to the possibilities that are here from moment to moment. In that, patience, if you will, sees flowers in seeds. It sees caterpillars, and it sees butterflies in caterpillars. Patience sees Buddhas in every child and every adult. Patience discovers that in the end, success and failure are both imposters and sees beyond them, senses in pain and tragedy some great lesson for the heart and some possibility. Now this kind of listening, this patience, this attention, is not really so special. It's not limited to Buddhas or somebody living in some ancient time or foreign country. It's available to any human being. A friend of mine who is a very wonderful body worker, lives in Marin, named Randy Cherner, has recently been studying with a French doctor, physician, who he said is the most remarkable intuitive teacher he's ever met. And, and Randy studied with Moshe Feldenkrais and Lauren Berry and a whole host of very famous body workers. He said, this guy's the most remarkable. And people who were with him were complaining, saying, you know, how are we ever going to learn what you do? Your intuition seems so sure. And he got quite upset, this Frenchman. He said, it's not just my special gift. He said, in the area of France near where I live, there are wine tasters who can be given a glass of wine and tell you what valley or what region of France it comes from and then drink a little bit further and tell you what year it was har planted and harvested. And then drink a little bit further and tell you even what particular vineyard in that valley. And maybe even whether it was, you know, on the sunny slope or on the backside of that vineyard. 
all tasting from that glass of wine. They were not born with that, but they, like all of us, were born with the capacity to see, to smell, to hear, to taste, to sense. And that's really what meditation is about and what spiritual life is about. It asks or kindles in us an interest, an attention, a kind of passion, if you will, to a potential to awaken. There was a talk that Krishnamurti gave some years ago, a series of his talks. I used to attend them in Ojai at the uh, Oak Grove there. Wonderful teachings. And he gave this series of talks for a week. And on the second to the last day, he gave a long talk about uh, birth and death and what death means and death and the unknown and the mystery. It was quite extraordinary, as most of his talks were. And he talked for about an hour and a half. And he said, well, perhaps I should stop now. Should I go on? And everyone said, yes, yes, you should go on. He said, yes, I've been thinking about talking more about perhaps healing. And they said, oh, please do. He said, well, have you been listening? And they said, yes, yes. He said, are you tired? No, no, we're not tired. He said, then you haven't really been listening. If you were really listening, you would be tired. If you really gave yourself to listen, you wouldn't even want me to go on. What I said in the first half hour was enough for you. He went on anyway for a little while. (laughs) Couldn't help himself, I get. Kabir says, wake up, wake up. Though you have slept for millions of years, why not wake up this morning? It's a good day to do it. So that's what spiritual life or meditation is about. Education to awaken, to wake up our senses, our eyes and our ears. This is education. Are we listening? Who are we? What do we value in this life? What is this life about for us? What do we really love? Are we living according to that? Are we open to this? So when we do formal meditation, we sit and walk, it's just this, it's to be patient, to listen, to train ourselves, to be quiet or to open, and to hear the Dharma or the Tao or the nature of things or the mystery. In sitting, we learn the art of feeling the breath, fast and slow, all of its rhythms, Sensing how the breath can breathe itself and in letting it breathe itself and being with it, we can begin to let all the other rhythms of our life move themselves as well. Sensing the body, being mindful of the places that we hold and constrict and the layers of attachment or fear felt in the body and the possibility for opening, release, energy, joy. Bringing attention to the feelings in the heart. Noticing our pains, our sorrows. What creates those? What are the lessons from those? If we listen deeply enough, what can those pains or sorrows turn into? If we go right to the center of them and see them and sense them and accept them. Understand them.
sensing the heart and joy, what would make joy in our lives, even in the difficult circumstances. Listening to the nature of mind, looking at birth and death itself, the limitations of a body and an incarnation, until we can hear in the deepest way the Tao, the Dharma, the truth. One of the wonderful things for me about teaching meditation retreats is the process of giving interviews to people. I like to do that very much because what happens in interviews is people come in after a day or two of sitting and walking and paying attention and I'll ask, what did you see? What did you hear? What did you sense? What was that like? What did you learn from it? And I'll listen and ask again and again, how deeply can you see? How true is that? Can you hear or sense even more deeply than that about yourself, your life? And people say the most wonderful and remarkable things. And I get to sit there and enjoy that. A contact high. It's great. Now, can you imagine if you came home, you know how it is when your kids come home from school and you say, what did you do today in school? Or what did you learn today in school? Suppose you came home from work every day and someone was there who loved you and said, well, what did you learn today? It's an interesting question. Not just how much did you make, what did you earn, but what did you learn? What did you discover at work or in, in driving through traffic or in going to the post office or whatever it was? What did you see that was new or mysterious or awakening today? That's really what education is, and that's what the Buddha recommended to people, why we do meditation at all. It asks us to remember that each day or each situation, each person that we're with, can be a place of learning and opening and awakening and mystery. That's what education is. To create in our lives a sacred space through sitting, through silence, through outer forms, until we can eventually nourish that and bring it into all the parts of our life. To do those things that remind us or inspire us to train ourselves like wine tasting, to do family tasting, or lover tasting, or work tasting, or neighbor tasting, or environmental tasting. What's going on in the neighborhood? What's going on in the environment? What's going on on this earth? To listen in that way. In that sense, somehow, to connect with the Tao, the Dharma, the Divine. And there isn't any other place we can find it but in our daily life. If we don't find it here, where else could it be? If enlightenment isn't here, where do you think you would find it? Again from Kabir. I said to this wanting creature inside me, what is this river you want to cross? There are no travelers on the river road and no road if you look closely. 
There's no river at all, and no boat, and no boatman. And there is no body, and no mind. Do you believe that there is some place else that will make the soul less thirsty? In some great absence, you will find nothing. Be strong then, and enter into your own body. There you have a solid place for your feet. Think about it carefully. Don't go off somewhere else. Kabir says this, Just throw away all thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are. So education is really just the same as loving things, opening to them, saying yes, giving our attention, cultivating our capacity to be alive. And meditation is to take the time to sit and do that, no matter what comes up for you. Pleasant or unpleasant, boring or beautiful, doesn't really matter. Oh, this is a horrible, boring meditation. How interesting. What is it that makes something horrible and boring? That itself is wonderful. One other thing as a way to end this talk tonight, which I forgot to tell you. They say and I don't know if it's true, but it might well be, that there's a test at the end, an exam, a quiz. The end of life, I mean. They ask you questions like, what did you learn? The same ones we ask in interviews after meditation. You sat for a day, what did you learn? What did you see? They say they give that same test again later in a bigger way, and that if you don't have the answer, you might have to repeat your lessons all over again. Go back to first grade all over. What did anybody learn today? Anything interesting? Please. You learned more how to love everyone and to share, and to be with yourself. How did you learn that, can you say? What moment you learned it, when you remembered? Just in doing it. Mm. Thank you. And not trying. Anybody else learn anything interesting today on this earth? Please. Well, Jack, I, I like very much your, your um, analogy to wine tasting. Mm. Um, and when you think of that, that uh, as you say, that this wine taster wasn't born with that ability, but refined it, learned it. Um, and it, it brought me back to what all this meditation is and what, what we learn from our meditation. And, 
learning about ourselves. And then when you went on to say, what if we were to become wine tasters, lover tasters, children tasters, um, and that to to have that same sophisticated palate mm. for our lovers, to know them the way we know the, the subtleties of a Cabernet or the subtleties <laughs> of our own breath, and knowing that to know our lovers, our children. I mean, I like that. Thank you. Thank you. So he was saying he liked the metaphor of wine tasting to be connoisseurs of our families and our communities and our neighborhood and our yards and our children and our lovers, to taste them each day. Thank you. Anybody else learn anything interesting today? Please. Learn that you reap what you sow. How would you learn that? That's, that can be a hard lesson sometimes, or a good one, depending. It was a good one? Thank you. She said she learned that if you give love to others, even if it doesn't come right back from them, it somehow passes on through them to yet others and others, and eventually it circles around and it tickles you later from behind. <laughs> Please. Is there a specific situation you learned that in? I was reading about something I thought I was against. Hmm. Because I kept on reading and trying to find things wrong with the arguments, I realized how much more work I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. That's great. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.